This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for March 15th, 2019. In this week's episode, Josh reports from the RSA conference, Facebook goes down for hours, a new way to send files with Firefox, and a look at Thunderclap, a new vulnerability with its own website. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Well, it's good to see you again, Josh. It's been a week that we haven't seen each other. Um, last week's episode, actually, we recorded in advance because Josh attended the RSA conference. RSA standing for? Rivest Shavir Edelman. Those are <laughs> cryptographers. Uh, that's originally what RSA stands for. Um, RSA now is also the name of a company, and then they partner with right. another company to put on this conference. And you came back with a funny hat. I did, yeah. So this hat is uh, probably in reference to something else, but uh, it says, I am root. Of course, I loved it because I'm thinking of the Mac OS I am root vulnerability uh, from, what was it, a year or two ago? Where yeah. uh, if you had just hit return a couple of times after typing root into the username field, the root account would be enabled on your Mac with no password. And the root account is the one that can do anything on your Mac. Right. Yeah, that was a pretty pretty sad <laughs> vulnerability. Um, thankfully, Apple fixed that a long time ago, but I still think the hat is kind of funny for that reason. It is, and I, I, I'm wondering if you're going to wear that outdoors, people see that, what will they think, that this is some sort of a a diet thing like you're a rudatarian or something yeah yeah <laughs> i uh, i have a, an old t-shirt that says got root on it in the style of the old you know got milk ads and uh, people always would scratch their heads and sometimes people would ask me about that what is that is that a new diet or what <laughs> what's got root <laughs> yes because getting root means that you have managed to get root access on a computer and can control it and do all that kind of stuff that Tom Cruise does in his movies. Right. It's really a hacking thing. But people, of course, who don't know that, uh, I actually had one person ask me, is that like a new drug? Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I said to you before the show, T-shirts are often inside jokes, and particularly this sort of technically related T-shirt. It's the kind of thing where you'll be walking down the street with your hat and people will look at you funny. And then one guy is going to walk by, give you a thumbs up because he'll understand what it means. Exactly. So, RSA Conference, you're going to have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog, so can you just sum up in three minutes what this conference is about and what the most interesting stuff you saw there was? Sure. Well, RSA Conference is, uh, I would say it's, it's probably one of the biggest security conferences. It happens every year. Uh, at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Uh, this is where Apple used to have Macworld Conference. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. There's an expo floor, you know, where uh, vendors get to exhibit their products and services. And sell their hats. And sell, yeah, or, or give away a lot of uh, swag, you know, hats, t-shirts, all kinds of crazy things. Um, what I'm more interested in at the show every year is um, there's some interesting sessions and keynotes. Usually the, the keynotes tend to be 
people from bigger name companies, or sometimes they even have people who have nothing to do with security, and then they try to kind of force it into a security uh, framework. Um, for example, last year they had Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who who gave a great keynote, and he right up front he said. I have no idea what I'm doing here because I know nothing about cybersecurity, but, uh, but he, he gave a great presentation about astrophysics and space and things. And then this year they had Tina Fey, uh, the comedian, uh, who again knows nothing about cybersecurity, but it was kind of interesting because, um, they interviewed her and kind of asked her questions mostly about, you know, um, being a boss and kind of having to make decisions about hiring people on a team and things like that. And they were sort of relating that to the cybersecurity industry and field. So there were keynotes uh, and then there's always conference sessions. That's the really interesting stuff. To, to me, that's the really interesting stuff because that's where you start to get a lot more technical stuff. Um, a lot of times going along with these sessions, a developer, a developer will release some new, um, uh, sometimes open source software that can be kind of interesting. There were a few examples of that this year. They're all pretty geeky things, but I'll probably mention those in, uh, in the article. So, so check that out on the Mac security blog. How many people attend this conference? You know, they're really cagey about that. They don't, they don't want to say, but, um, but there's definitely, I mean, it's a, fairly well attended conference. Um, so some of the keynotes, uh, you know, are in a very, very large room. It's, it's it, there's definitely a big turnout. And I would say there's probably more people who go every year just because this is uh, a big, well-known, well-publicized event. Okay. Well, check the show notes for a link to Josh's article on the Intego Mac security blog. We've had a lot of news in the past week, some really interesting news. And, you know, we, we prepare this show beforehand and we send each other links and everything. And some of the stories that come out are really surprising. We're going to get to one that I think is just one of the coolest stories I've read in a while. But first, you know, Facebook did something dumb again. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that you're getting this on Friday, March 15 or later. Um, Facebook has had an outage from roughly to Wednesday to Thursday, depending on where you are in the world. It even made the news talking about how Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp are down. Personally, I haven't had a problem, but if you had, this story is going to make you question how much you can trust Facebook. The The headline is, if you want online privacy, change your phone number immediately. <laughs> and basically what this is about is um, that Facebook, um, you know, we've talked about how a lot of times the second factor or second step authentication methods require you to give a phone number to, so that you, you give your cell phone number. They send you a lot of times a text message that contains a, a one-time use pin that, that you put in to prove that you really own a device, which um, in theory proves that you are really the person who says that they are trying to log in. And so what Facebook was caught doing was using uh, these uh, phone numbers that maybe people had only given that to Facebook for the specific purpose of, you know, second step authentication. And Facebook was um, using those phone numbers for other things. Facebook has been asking me for my phone number for a very long time. And it says, don't worry, we won't use it for anything else. Of course, now, the next time they ask, I'm curious to see what the, the form says. What they're doing now is they're allowing people's phone numbers to be used in searches. So let's say you get a phone call from someone. It could even be a wrong number. You don't answer it or 
whatever, you see the phone number on your phone and you want to find out who it is, you could find out who that person is perhaps by entering that number and searching on Facebook. Yeah, it's this, this is something that in the past, I think a lot of times people would not consider a phone number to be personally identifiable information. But um, frankly, I mean, if you think about it, you're the only one who has that phone number, especially when you're talking about a cell phone. You're the only one in the world because when you yeah. when you add the country code, the area code, and the phone number, it's unique. Right. So if you look at it that way, um, you know, there's a one-to-one mapping of phone numbers to humans generally. And so uh, I would say that that's very much personally identifiable information. Um, and so for, for that reason, a lot of people don't want to give out their phone number to the public. Yeah, exactly. I never put a phone number in on a, a web form unless... I've ordered something and they need the phone number in case the delivery driver needs to find me. And particularly because I I live in a rural area, so it's not, there's no street names or street numbers or anything. The Wired article is interesting. It says that your phone numbers become a crucial piece of identification. In some ways, it's like an online passport and is used by a plethora of apps and services to confirm that you are who you say you are. And it's gotten easy for um, phone numbers to be cloned and spoofed, and your phone number is not as safe as it was. Uh, we've said this many times. It's much better to use an authentication app to create that code. I just logged into, I don't know, whatever it was, and I have my thing on my Apple Watch, and I get the six digits, and it's probably a little bit more work. There's a few more steps in getting the code uh, as an SMS, but it's infinitely safer. Significantly more more secure. So, um, and and. For those who haven't read it yet, we'll put a link again in the show notes to Kirk's article about um, a few different iOS authentication apps that you can use. Okay, so next in the news, Mozilla has launched a new free encrypted file sharing service. Now, you know what happens when you have a big file to send to someone. Well, there are services, I'm thinking one is called You Send It that sometimes people send me files with. If you're on the Mac, you can use Apple's MailDrop. That lets you add files up to five gigabytes, and it sort of sends your attachment through iCloud. Firefox Send is this new service. You can send up to one gigabytes. If you sign in, you may have to create an account with Firefox. You can send up to two and a half. And so what's interesting is that you can set a password. You can also set how long the download link will last or how many times it can be downloaded. So you could set it to last for one day and only be downloaded once or maybe downloaded twice in case someone tries to download and fails. But that's a lot better security than Apple. AirDrop lasts for 30 days. Uh, I'm not doubting that AirDrop is encrypted uh, HTTPS up and down and stored on uh, Apple servers. But this Firefox service is really interesting. And you don't even need to use Firefox. Before the show, we tested it um, using Safari. Right. It seems really interesting. Now, End-to-end uh, encryption is what the, what they say that they're using, and that's it's sort of a vague term because it, what it could mean is that well, you have to use HTTPS to get to this website, um, and uh, you know maybe they're storing the file on an encrypted volume, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Mozilla engineers can't see the contents of your file. You know, it's it's worth making sure that with any service like this, that you read the fine details carefully if they give details about how the service works behind the scenes. But, you know, if, if you just need a quick way to share a file and if you don't really care if a Mozilla engineer, you know, might potentially be able to see it, this seems like a pretty good way to do it. Um, I especially like the idea 
that um, you can password protect a download, which uh, you mentioned that MailDrop has some overlapping functionality, but that's something you can't do with MailDrop is add a password on it like that. Um, so I kind of I, I like the idea of this too. If, if let's say that uh, maybe you want to release something to the public, but you're only going to make it free for the first 50 people who download it, you could use uh, Mozilla's service for this because you can just set a limit of 50 downloads. That's a good idea. I'll think about that next time I release something to the public. Um, so in other news, and this is something that's not really breaking news. You. We talk about passwords and how important it is to have a secure password, a long, complicated password that can't be guessed and can't be cracked. And there are a number of elements that have put into place recently that may in the future mean that we won't be using passwords to log into websites. We'll use our face, our fingerprint, or some other way of doing this. When we were talking about this before the show, you said to me, well, it's not new, but what what seems interesting to me is that this is getting to the stage where now the different companies can start to implement this in their product. Apparently, people can log into Microsoft accounts without entering a password if they're using Windows 10 and Microsoft Edge. There's a lot of things required for this to work. But I like the idea of not having to worry about passwords. You know, since I've gotten a, an iPhone with Face ID, uh, it's brilliant. And if it's reliable enough for the banks to trust, then I'm thinking it would be reliable enough for websites to trust as well. Yeah, this is a really interesting concept. And, and there was actually a presentation about um, uh, the FIDO2 compliant security keys and how all the major browsers are now supporting this new authentication technology that doesn't require you to use a password anymore. And it's it's kind of interesting because there we there's always kind of been this chicken and egg problem, right? There's There's this problem where you need to have a technology that's everywhere. Um, or else nobody is going to adopt it on their website. And you also need to have the website providers give you some way then to log in with something other than a password. Um, and so there have been a lot of um, solutions proposed. There's one called Squirrel SQRL, which uh, Steve Gibson has tried to promote, but uh, and it's, it's open source, it's out there, but nobody's adopted it yet. Um, there's maybe one or two websites that are actually using this as a login method. So the idea of something that is already built into all these major desktop browsers, that's really great. Uh, we, I, I could definitely see this being something that uh, could be used in the future. But again, n- now that we've got one side of it solved, the browser manufacturers are supporting it. Now we need to get websites to start supporting it too. Otherwise, you're still going to see the same old thing that you've always seen with passwords. So the story that interested me the most, and this is about 10 days ago on Gizmodo, why JI32K7AU4A83 is a remarkably common password. Now I look at that and I'm thinking, well, that's the kind of password that my password manager generates when I do like a 14 character random password, but it's not so random. And this is really fascinating. What it turns out, and we were trying to figure out exactly what's going on, this is a very common password used by Chinese people. It translates four Chinese characters that mean my password in Chinese. But what it does is each of the Chinese character has a three-character um, Unicode equivalent. So the first character is JI3, the second is 2K7, etc. And they kind of spell out Chinese doesn't spell the same as English does, but MY password. This is really fascinating because you and I would see this password and figure, nah, there's no way that anyone's going to figure this out. Yet, apparently, lots of people are using this. 
Yeah, and the, the way I envision somebody typing this into a, a password field, I would think that it would show up like four characters. But um, the way it's actually being um, recorded is as, you know, a 12-character password of all, you know, lowercase letters and numbers in a Roman alphabet. So it's uh, it, <laughs> what's actually showing up when you're typing this in in Chinese is different from what's actually being stored by the website. And so whereas you can't usually use a four-character password on any website... Um, in fact, that might have, it should have probably been a red flag for people who were, well, trying to use my password as the password anyway. Um, <laughs> they should have known better than to use my password. And also, um, they probably should have known that no website should accept a four character password, which might mean that something else is going on here. So the, the thing to understand, though, is that Chinese character keyboards don't have all the Chinese characters. Um, I studied Chinese many years ago, and I believe that you can carry on a basic conversation if you know about 2,000 characters. Um, but, you know, for reading complicated books, you need 10 or 20,000. You don't have 10 or 20,000 characters in the keyboard. You enter multiple keys to generate a character. So what I'm thinking is what happens is you generate those, those you, you type the three characters of the first character, and then the software translates that and displays the actual Chinese character. Behind the scenes, in the background, it can't be recording that character. It has to record the Unicode equivalent of the character in whatever database is storing the password. In, in any case, I just find this fascinating that something that looks so obscure to us is really just my password in Chinese. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. So another week, another vulnerability. I guess that's not really fair because they don't happen weekly, this kind of vulnerability. There are some very, very serious uh, vulnerabilities that have come out. And the first one we're going to talk about is Thunderclap. Now, you know Thunderclap is serious because it's already got its own domain, thunderclap.io. Um, Thunderclap has something to do with Thunderbolt, which is a uh, system for transferring data, uh, very common on recent Apple computers. This is pretty confusing. Can you dumb this down so I can understand it, Josh? I think the the simplest way to explain this is basically don't trust <laughs> Thunderbolt or USB uh, Type-C devices that you might 
find laying around somewhere, don't just plug them into your uh, to your computer or let other people plug those kind of devices into your computer. Okay, so if I find a flash drive in a hotel room, I'm not going to just stick it into my computer to see what's on it. So if you see a flash drive in a parking lot, um, don't assume that, oh, hey, there might be something kind of cool on there. I wonder what's on there and plug it into your computer because basically you might actually be causing some problems. You could infect your computer, um, among other things. So um, that's the really short, simple explanation of uh, kind of how to avoid getting caught by this thunderclap vulnerability. Okay, quick question. Didn't we have similar things to this years ago with USB devices? I don't know if you picked up a random USB device and plugged it in. And, and, and I remember a lot of friends of mine who would be going to things like the Macworld Expo or other where they were giving away USB thumb drives to people um, would generally just throw them away because how could you trust them? Exactly. Yeah, there was uh, something called Bad USB um, that I think was in 2014. Um, and this was uh, a new newly conceived attack where basically the, what happens whenever you plug in any device into your computer, your computer figures out what type of device that is. And then um, based on that information, it decides what to do with that device. If it's a flash drive. Okay, cool. Right. Is it a storage device? Is it a network device? Um, or is it just a USB powered fan that you stick on your laptop to keep yourself cool in the summer? So there's there's lots of different things that a USB or Thunderbolt or Firewire, as used to be the case, uh, device could be. It could be any number of things. Part of the idea behind some of these attacks is that um, a device could identify itself differently from what it might appear to be. So when you pick something up and you you know you look at it on the outside, it might look just like a flash drive. It might really have some other capabilities built into it. Um, so there was bad USB. Um, there have been other um, attacks similar to Thunderclap. Thunderclap is what's called a direct memory access exploit, um, or DMA. Sometimes it's abbreviated. Um, so there have been previous versions or variations of DMA, direct memory access attacks, with Thunderbolt in the past, and also even with its predecessor, Firewire. Um, Max used to have FireWire 800 ports, and before that was FireWire 400 on even older Macs. And these types of ports um, have, I guess, deeper access uh, to things in your system, including your system memory. And that's where this can get a little bit scary. So on recent Macs, you, you, you now have, have a type of port um, that can do Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt 3, um, and it can also do USB. And it can do DisplayPort with an adapter, can't it? Right. It, it can do a whole bunch of things. It can be used for a storage device, for networking, for display, for all sorts of things. One thing that I'm seeing in this article that I find interesting is the, the person explains that computer peripherals such as network cards and GPUs have traditionally been trusted parts of a computer system. So they have direct memory access, which you mentioned earlier. But does that mean that, you know, we've talked about sandboxing, how one app can't access another part of the operating system as security. Does that mean that hardware is not sandboxed? Not necessarily. <laughs> um, with with something that you can plug into this type of port, um, it's now, I, I mean, it always kind of has been actually possible for DMA ports 
um, to whatever you plug in there can potentially access different parts of system memory. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to think carefully about what you're plugging into your computer. You know, they mention in on, on thunderclap.io on the official vulnerability page, you know, they have some frequently asked questions and things and they ask, you know, so what can I do about this? And one of the suggestions they have is they say, well, you can go into your PC's BIOS and maybe disable your Thunderbolt ports if you're not using them. Where do I find that on the Mac? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can't really do that on the Mac, especially if you have a Mac that uh, is charged using these ports. You certainly can't shut off your Thunderbolt port if that's the same port that you're using to charge your Mac. There's just no way to shut that off. And particularly on Macs that only have one USB-C port, um, like the 12-inch MacBook, where if you want to use multiple devices, you need a dongle. What, what I'm trying to figure out is if I connect my iPhone to my iMac via a cable. My iMac says to me, are you going to trust this device? And the iPhone has a dialogue and I have to tap trust and tap my pin to be able to use it. Yet I've never seen this for a Thunderbolt device. And I have a fairly recent MacBook Pro. And when I connect the cable to charge it, it doesn't ask me when I connect a a cable to put an external hard drive onto it doesn't ask me anything either. The reason for that is when you have to type that in on your iPhone, it's more of a matter of uh, deciding for your iPhone's security whether you want to trust the Mac that you're connecting it to. It's not so much the other way around. But what you were saying, though, is even if the Mac was telling me, well, I've just connected a storage device, it could be that this thunderclap is pretending to be a storage device when it's not, right? Right. Or, or it could be treating itself as multiple devices. So it may very well show up like a storage device, but also be doing something else um, surreptitiously without your knowledge. Basically, yeah, I mean, the, the long and short of this is you just need to be careful about what you plug in. Don't trust, you know, charging stations. Recently, the I think it was the NSA had a booth at a conference and uh, they were inviting people to come and charge your device at our booth. And it was sort of a, a joke because they know at these security conferences that there are people who know better than to just plug in and charge their device anywhere. But of course, there were actually people who were doing this because either they didn't know better or they just thought, hey, it's funny and there's no way the NSA is really going to hack my device. So Thunderclap's not the only one. There's also one called Spoiler. Now, that's a great name, and we're going to use that for the title of our episode here, Spoiler Alert, because everyone knows what that means. When I hear a name like this, Thunderclap, it sounds like, you know, some sort of mythological thing, right? It's got its own domain, and it's really cool. But Spoiler, it sounds just like it's a lame vulnerability. Is it really lame? Oh, boy. So this this is um, a pretty interesting attack. And, and if you thought that Thunderclap sounded like a very technical vulnerability. Spoiler is even more technical. Okay, I want to read the first line of the abstract uh, PDF document we'll link to in the show notes. Modern microarchitectures incorporate optimization techniques such as speculative loads and store forwarding to improve the memory bottleneck. It, it, I got lost after modern microarchitectures. <laughs> 
Right. So um, I, I guess the thing to know about this, if you uh, most people have probably heard of Meltdown and Spectre. These were these. Yeah, we've talked about them. Yeah. Yeah. Really big vulnerabilities that um, were sort of became public knowledge at the beginning of last year of 2018. Basically, what spoiler is, it's not the same vulnerability, but it's sort of a variation on the idea of this speculative execution, which we did talk about on an episode way back at the beginning of last year, what speculative execution means. If I remember correctly, it means that the processor kind of goes ahead in the code to do things because it can work so quickly. Even if there's 10 possibilities and only one of them gets used, it works out faster than doing the code and waiting to know what to do. Is it something like that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So it's trying to predict what is probably going to come next. And so it might go down two different paths. And then if, um, if one of those paths end up ends up not being what the user ends up doing, then it's okay. We've already started going down the other path too. So we'll just drop that other path. And so the idea behind speculative execution attacks is um, you can do some tricky things by following the path that you weren't supposed to take. And that's sort of the general idea um, behind speculative execution attacks. The road not traveled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you never know what you might find there. <laughs> but do we, okay, this is the kind of thing, and we're going to link to a few articles, one on ZDNet. Um, it's it's in the processors. There's nothing we can do about this. Well, and yeah, so that's kind of the thing. ZDNet's um, headline it includes the phrase, don't expect a quick fix. And well, that's true. We actually didn't see um, exactly a quick fix uh, when it came to fully mitigating Meltdown Inspector. We did see some software updates come out, but even though the software updates don't, really address the core problem. So there's still some underlying hardware issues that maybe could be addressed with firmware updates. Um, And basically what the operating system vendors, Apple and Microsoft and, and Google did was they found some ways to sort of work around it. So it wouldn't be likely that someone could execute one of uh, these types of attacks against meltdown inspector vulnerabilities. And so we might see something like that happen with spoiler as well. Um, but the types of attacks here are probably, it's hard to say where, where exactly you might see some mitigation here. Um, one of the proposed ways that this spoiler vulnerability could be attacked is through JavaScript, um, browser-based attacks. Um, supposedly it makes them a lot more feasible. So you, it could, you could actually execute an attack using spoiler that would only take seconds, whereas previously this type of attack would take weeks to execute. I'm not reassured by all this. <laughs> so basically you can just go to some random web page that can have a payload and that can do all sorts of nasty things. Theoretically. Now, nobody's actively exploiting this in the wild yet. Um, it's It may take a while before any you know cyber criminals figure out some way to actually use this vulnerability. But um, it's something to be aware of. Worth noting that this does not affect the iPhone or iPad because they use ARM-based chips. So Intel chips are one type of processor and, and ARM processors are another. And Apple's created its own chips for the iPhone and the iPad based on this ARM type processor. And it's 
pretty likely that Apple's going to move the Mac to that as well. So those processors wouldn't be affected. Of course, there's nothing to prevent similar vulnerabilities from being discovered on those processors, right? That's really important to point out. So ARM-based uh, processors like the A-series chips that you find in iPhones and iPads are not affected. Also, AMD processors, which are um, very similar to Intel processors, also don't have this vulnerability. Um, now, Apple doesn't use AMD processors. That's something you find in some Windows PCs as sort of a low cost, you know, alternative to Intel processors. So this is, is is worth noting that this is really something that is a flaw specific to Intel's particular design. Um, not something that, as far as we know at this point in time, really directly affects other processor architectures. Okay, I think I sort of understood some of this. Um, th there is a lot of complicated stuff. We'll have all sorts of links in the show notes. So if you do want to know more, you'll be able to find out there. Josh, good to see you again. Thanks. And until next week, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>